Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be continuing today in our sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. One quick note, and I apologize for this. My notes are not popping up right now, so this might be fun, but I'm pretty good at this. We'll talk about it, all right? I know what I'm talking about today. No, my notes aren't popping up on here. It's just hating me. Today's sermon is on Mark 3, 13 through 35, and I actually have a name for this one, which is called to and called out. Jesus, the 12, and the opposition, right? Boom. Two words that are used in the same way and in different ways. That's right. Normal pastor sermon title. Mark 3, 13 through 35 starts in this way. Uh, Oh, first, real, real quick question. Have you personally ever been called out on anything? Yeah? Good or bad, right? Have you been called out on anything good before? Like, hey, I need someone to be willing to do this thing. You just know that that person is saying something to you, and you're like, okay, I'm fine, I'll do it. Blades are like, no, but I've done it to you before, straight up. Like, I need this thing designed well. Can you please fix it for me? Easiest way to call Blade out is to design something horrible and then hold it up in front of him, in case anyone doesn't know that. <laughs> like, who here has ever been uh, called out, as in someone has been called out, like maybe even publicly, like, hey, you, person, stop doing that. I got this a lot in college. Uh, in case you can't tell, I bounce around a lot, and I jump around a lot, and I have a whole hard time standing still. Uh, if you haven't noticed that before, just watch at any point whenever I'm reading scripture, because I start doing this while I'm reading. I just go back and forth and switch legs. It's kind of ridiculous. I have to try to not do that. One thing I would do when I was in college is I would actually sit in my class and either have my head down and be asleep, sort of, or literally have my back turned to the professor with my legs up on the desk behind me reading a book. And I did that a lot because I was dumb and ridiculous and I uh, was not very respectful of a human at times. And I didn't realize how disrespectful I was being until at one point, the professor actually just sort of walked around me and like pushed my legs down without breaking stride while he was talking and then just pushed me so I was facing forward and then walked up in front of me and started talking like, oh, I probably shouldn't do that. That's an oopsie. Do you want to know my real favorite time being called out in college though was? So I fell asleep once during class. You know this story already? Did I tell you? No? Totally. Totally. I used to carry my guitar with me everywhere, all right? And I would play any of my back, any of my random time I had available. I would just sit there and noodle on my guitar, right? And so I had it with me at all classes I went to, including my entry-level philosophy classes. Uh, So I was at an entry-level philosophy class in Malone with my guitar under my desk, totally just fell asleep completely during this professor's class. First name was Dr. Pretzel. Dude was really cool. It's kind of fun, all right? Fell asleep. And then was awoken very quickly, very loudly, by someone holding my own guitar up to my head and playing Eye of the Tiger as loud as they could at my face. (laughs) And it was the professor, actually. He woke me up that way. He he actually got out the guitar, tuned it in front of the whole class, and just got right up against me, just played really loud. I'm like, oh, I respect this man, gentlemen. I get called out all the time, right? Jesus sometimes called people out. He called them to himself, and then he called them out as well. So here's time whenever he did both. Mark 3, 13 through 35, it says this. And he went up to the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Borgenes, that is, sons of thunder, 
Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons who cast out the demons. And he called to them, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against himself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, uh, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and brothers came, standing outside. They sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around them, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The word of the Lord, right? Checking, nope, nope, my notes are not going to pop on here. So I'm going to go ahead and ignore this screen completely. One second, I pulled it up in a different app. So first thing I'm going to do as we walk through this sermon real quick is just go over the cast of characters that we read here. Because Mark, as he is writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he is still writing stories that capture our hearts and our attention and our minds so that we can actually learn and grow in them. So this section here, while it seems like there's a bunch of random stories disconnected, it's actually one whole chunk of story. And the cast of characters are pretty important. So first person in the cast, Jesus, our protagonist. The one whom we are actually following, looking after, trying to see how he lives and acts and moves. And everyone else that we talk about is in orbit around him, right? Next group of people we have are his followers. So Jesus is going up onto a mountainside and he speaks to all of his followers. And he calls out and says, come and follow me. And a whole bunch of people stand up and go up this mountain with him. Following that, we have the 12. A specific group of people appointed from that group of followers. That Jesus says, you 12 are going to follow me. And fun story, you know that whole thing I said where sometimes we can tell that Mark was writing to people who had a Greek-speaking thought as opposed to a, uh, a Jewish-speaking thought? Mark uses a term here for them, apostles, instead of disciples. Mark says, these are the ones whom Jesus called apostles. He never even bothers calling them disciples here. Because disciple is a word that a Roman audience wouldn't get very well. But apostle, they would. Apostle is basically ambassador, or one who was sent out. That really gets the concept of what's happening here. Following the 12, we have the crowd of people who surround Jesus and are almost crushing him. So these are, again, back to all of the people who are following him around, but not just people who are following him because they like him, but also people who are following him because they want to hear what he's saying, right? Good or bad. Next group of people that show up in this is Jesus' family, his mother and his brothers. Yes, Jesus had brothers. Mary had kids after Jesus. His family shows up. It's the first time we actually see in this gospel Jesus' physical family uh, interacting with him in this way. And then we have the scribes who are still following Jesus, but they're doing so to oppose him. They want to see what he's hearing and doing because they want to uh, oppose him completely. Then we have this fun guy, uh, Beelzebul, 
or Satan, right? We'll talk about him in a second. Uh, you're saying, bub, we'll talk about that. There's a reason why it is be as a bull or be as a bub. It's actually a, a, a basically a pun, and we'll discuss it in Hebrew. You'll get it. Get there. I promise. <laughs> then we have the Holy Spirit, another character listed. These are our cast of characters here. So let's talk about them a little bit more and what we can learn from them and how we see them. The first group that we see are the apostles, uh, or they're the people who follow him and are called out by him, right? So Jesus has this great crowd surrounding him. He goes on around and he calls to him all whom he desires. Literally, everyone that he wants says, you come, you come, you come, you come, you come, you come, and you come. And not just 12. There's sort of an inference here that we sometimes think he called 12 people up to talk to him on a mountain. But it says he called up a bunch of people, and then from those people, he appointed 12 of them. So Jesus had a whole bunch more followers than we sometimes think about. Uh, like whenever we talk about at the end of this, whenever there's apostles are all sitting up in an upper room, there's probably about 120 people or so that are there with him. Jesus eventually sends out 72 people to go with his disciples to go and proclaim his word to people. Like there's a bunch of people following him at any one time, and some of them are really, really close to him. And he picked 12 specifically. And here's why he picked them. He said, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So interesting concept. He called these people to him. And he said, this is your purpose. You will be with me. So he actually is inviting them into deeper relationship with him. To be with him wherever he goes at all times. To spend their lives with him over the next couple years. And then he gave them the same authority he had to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And included in this proclamation is the ability to cast out demons and later we'll find out heal the sick as well. He gave them his authority over the world, which is interesting. So these are disciples who are called to be with Jesus and focus on him, but at the same time to go out and proclaim him to the world. Fun story, this is one of the reasons why we at City Church have the mission statement that says, I'm sorry, the vision statement that says, we exist to make disciples who worship him and proclaim him. Because Jesus made disciples who worshiped him. They wanted to be with him and spend their time with him and focus on him. But they also proclaimed him. They went and preached him. And they functioned within his authority in the world. And those disciples that he made, after he uh, had resurrected and risen again and ascended into heaven, they went and made disciples who did the same thing. And those disciples went and made disciples who did the same thing. And they did, and so on, and so forth, and so forth, and so forth, all the way down to you. That call is carried on to you and to me and the rest of the church. So if you're ever wondering what your purpose is as a human, the primary one is this. You are called to be with Jesus, to focus on him, to function with him, to worship him, to love him. And then to proclaim him to the world. Super easy. Just do that. Everything else will fall in place. Right? As one of my friends said, it's easy to say what we're supposed to do. The hard part is actually doing it. But that's what we're called to be, right? Now. Skip, skip, skip. The next one that we see we're going to actually talk about is his family. So, Jesus' family heard the things that Jesus was saying and doing, recognized that he is out amongst crowds, gathering people to himself, and proclaiming this coming kingdom. And their response is what? He's out of his mind. This guy's crazy. 
let's go get our brother. Uh, we got to go call him down, get him back to our house, uh, medicate him, do whatever we have to do, make sure he is fine, right? We'll take care of him so that he can come back into his mind. They might have thought he was delirious or something of that nature, right? There's this fun thing Mark does where sometimes he actually takes a story that he starts and he breaks it in half and he shoves something else into the middle of it. This is one of those times. He starts here talking about Jesus' family, who they're coming to him to tell him that he's supposed to come with them because he's out of his mind. Then it breaks off and goes into the story with the scribes, and it comes back to his family afterwards. And that gives emphasis that the middle story part tells you about what's happening here. So middle story part. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons who cast out demons. Fun story, Beelzebul. Beelzebul is the name that is given to one of the gods of Canaan in the Old Testament. Beelzebub, actually. So in 2 Kings, there's this one king who is sick, and he doesn't know what to do, so he goes off to this foreign land and goes out to this king, not this king, to this temple, and he actually goes and worships this other god, Baal Zebub. So if you ever heard of Baal in the Old Testament, that's the first part of his name, Baal Zebub and entreats him to make him whole again, to make him well. Now, fun story. You see, Beelzebub has a very specific meaning, which is Lord of the Flies. Probably heard of that before, right? Baal is Lord. Zebub is of flies, basically. But there's this concept that likely what happened is that the people who were writing the Old Testament, and specifically the people who were speaking about that God, uh, didn't like him. And his name was actually Beelzebul, or Beelzebub, which is Beelzebul, which means Lord of the Manor House, or Lord of all the other lords, right? So they didn't like that one. Like, that's not true. Let's just give him a stupid name instead. Instead of Beelzebul, they called him Beelzebub, right? He punned it up. You should like this blade. It's punny. No? It's good. Let him go. He's tired. I understand. So Baal, Zebul, was a foreign god who was considered to be the lord of all other foreign gods beneath him, right? Now the issue becomes that by the time this portion of scripture is rolling around, there had been whole bunches of thoughts built up about what heavenly things were like. In the book of First Enoch specifically, there's this one section where it is talking about the fact that whenever Israel loses political control over its land, God also allows demons to come forth and actually take control over that land and actually exercise authority over it. It's in First Enoch. Don't know if it's true or not, but Jesus knew what his people were thinking and what people surround him were thinking. And likely whenever they say he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons who cast out demons, this is probably the sort of concept they're thinking about. Jesus is walking around Jerusalem Jerusalem has been given over to all of these demons because Rome controls it now. And Jesus is actually functioning under the power of one of those demons. That's what the scribes are saying. Specifically, the Lord of the manor house. The Lord of the house. And so we see Jesus do one of his first parables. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand, but it's coming to an end. Remember how I said it's Lord of the Manor House? Is what that demon's name means? Lord of the House? 
Jesus then says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and take his stuff, plunder his goods, unless he first binds that strong man. And indeed, he can plunder the house. So Jesus sees that they're saying, this person rules over Israel, the land. This person is one of the demons in charge of this area. And Jesus is working under his authority. And Jesus says, no, that strong man, Beelzebul, the lord of the manor, you can't steal from him unless you tie him up first. He has to be stronger than the strong man to do it. Jesus actually says he has entered the world to plunder this person's possessions, to take them back for himself, and he binds that person longer than me. He says, I'm stronger than him. And also it makes literally no sense for Satan to be fighting against himself. I have authority over him. He doesn't have authority over me. Is Jesus' main point here. I say to you, all sins will be forgiven of the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So they were saying he has an unclean spirit. This has bothered people for years. Who here has ever read about the fact there's something like an unforgivable sin? And this sort of messed you up. Like, what the crap does that mean? Has it ever bothered you? Yeah. Here is the easiest way to understand what Jesus is saying here. Whenever he says this person is blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, what he is saying is it is a person who sees the work the Holy Spirit is doing, who recognizes it as a miraculous work and something that is actually occurring, and then says that work is not of God, that's of Satan. This is not the same as questioning whether Jesus was able to do miracles. This is wholly affirming, yes, Jesus did miracles perfectly, and it is by Satan's power. You get the difference there? It's very, very hard to have salvation while actively saying the agent who offers you salvation does not have the ability to offer you salvation. That's why it's an unforgivable sin. You literally can't forgive it because it is not possible to get past. If you do that, you are giving up the ability to accept the forgiveness that's offered to you. Now, it's worth knowing Jesus also spoke a lot of times in, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, Parable, yes, but it's also, it's whenever you speak further on, he uses a large amount of wording that's beyond it. Paul does it all the time. He emphasizes language by going to a ridiculous extreme. Hyperbole, thank you. Thank you to both of you who answered at the same time. Jesus had an amazing ability to speak in hyperbolic terms a lot, a lot of the time. He would speak to this most extreme thing while recognizing the fact that that's not what's there. He doesn't actually say anyone who is currently even saying he's working under saying has committed this. So he's not even saying the, the Pharisees have done this yet. But he's giving them a warning that if you go way too far, you're going to be in trouble. So please note, if you're ever worried about whether or not you've ever committed that sin, if you're worried about it, no, you haven't. And also, Jesus was literally talking to people who were looking at him in the eye and saying, you're working under the power of Satan. He said, you might be getting close. It's not that you've done it. You probably haven't done that. Next. We get back to his mother and brothers. So we have this one point where people are questioning whether Jesus has the authority to do what he has to do, wondering if he is possessed by Satan, wondering if he is out of his mind. And his brothers and sisters and mothers come, and they're standing outside, and they send to him, and they call him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? 
Remember I talked about the audacity of Jesus at times? Could you imagine, uh, say someone right now knocked on that back door and said, hey, your relationship is possibly one of the closest people to you, mother, father, spouse, sister, husband, child, is outside, and they want you. And your response back is, who are they? I'm with my family right now. That would probably smart a little bit. Especially whenever Jewish culture says you must honor your parents in everything. Jesus is being honoring to his mother somehow while saying, if she doesn't believe in me, she's not acting like my mother. Makes sense. He's totally God. Uh, to ignore him and disregard him is probably the one thing that could mean like you probably shouldn't listen to what that person's saying. If someone close to you tells you to disregard God, don't do that. I'm looking at those who sat around and said, here is my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. We see this dichotomy between the two different groups of people. The dichotomy between those who hear what he's saying, accept that he is called out by him, and follow him. And those who hear what he is saying and are confused by it and reject him. There's two different things to pull here. One is this. Are you, as a person, called out to Christ? Are you called out by him? Are you supposed to be his? The answer to that is a blanket yes. You're supposed to be his. He wants you to follow him. And as you are working through what it means to be a follower of his, or as you're debating whether that's even possible, think to yourself, am I one who is hearing and heeding the words he says, or am I one who is saying, I don't know if I trust that he is who he says he is or he does what he says he does. Because the scribes heard Jesus speak, and they said, no, he's got Satan. His family heard Jesus speak, and they said, no, he's out of his mind. And his disciples followed him and said, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. What is your response to Jesus? Are you being convicted in your heart that you have been working against him or for him? Are there any ways in your life you've been working against him? And I ask this for a specific reason. In the passage we just read, who is Jesus' greatest opposition? It's his greatest opposition, Satan, or Beelzebub. No. Jesus tied him up, plundered his house, stealing his stuff. Satan's not very worrisome to him. He's not a giant piece of opposition. Who was the scribe's worst enemy there? Was Satan really their worst enemy? Who was their worst enemy? Themselves, right? Both each other and themselves. You are your own worst enemy. Yes. Thank you, people who get, I appreciate all of you for knowing that reference and you make me very happy.
All right. I cannot continue the song on. All right. But whenever we say this, you think they're like, oh, no, we, we fight against demons and rulers and principalities. Right, we do in the world. They can't keep you from Christ. You might think we fight against the world. The world is what we struggle against. But they can't keep you from Christ, right? Let's think about this logically. Satan, we agree, exists and believes he exists. And I believe he has influence and authority in the world at times. But he can't make you do anything. If you follow Jesus, he doesn't have the power to make you do anything. He can tempt you. He can hold up something that looks precious that you might want and say, "This? are you sure you don't want to walk over this way? He can hold up bread when you're hungry or even the temptation to make rocks turn into bread. He can hold up the temptation to have power and authority, but he can't make you take it. He can tempt you to no end. He can't force you to sin or reject God. The world can tempt you to no end. You can be tempted by people. You can be tempted by things. You can be tempted by worldly goods and possessions. But they can't make you sin and walk against God. Who is the one who makes you choose to follow or reject Jesus? Yeah. It's on you. It's on me. We sometimes freak out over the possibility of having... Uh, demons or the world affect us and draw us away from Jesus. But when a push comes to shove, we are the ones that choose to draw near and choose to draw away. So what do you choose? As you step forward in your life, in each individual moment of it, each second of it, are you choosing to step closer to Jesus or to step further away from him? Are you choosing to do what he says and calls you to, or are you choosing to follow the world? Satan is not your worst enemy. He is horrible, obviously. He's quite bad. He can attack you spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and even physically. He can hound you day and night, torture you, tempt you, and try and draw you away from God in whatever way he can. But you are the one who makes the decision to follow him. So the real question of this sermon is the same one that Jesus was asking his followers. Who is your allegiance to? Is your allegiance to some part of the world? Is your allegiance to your own well-being? Is your allegiance to your family first and foremost? Or is your allegiance to Christ? I cannot guarantee that if your allegiance is to Christ, your life will be super easy. No, can't whatsoever because it won't be the apostles had very rough lives at times they were imprisoned they were stoned they were tortured they were killed many of them were murdered for the sake of jesus they had what we would consider rough lives going places we wouldn't normally want to go saying things we wouldn't normally feel comfortable saying in public but they did it anyway because their allegiance was ultimately to christ not to their own feelings or your allegiance is to Jesus, you'll be able to overcome a multitude of hardships in life because you will recognize that what he is doing is more important than what we want. 
he is more important than what I have. He is more important than what the world says I should have. He is more important than what uh, Satan says we should have. He is more important than what my brain thinks I want to have. What he wants matters more. So that would probably be my takeaway for you. That's my big one. Here's what I'd like you to do this week. We get caught up at times as we go throughout our week where we can very easily slip into times where we are self-centered, self-focused, or focused on what would make people around us happy, right? You guys ever get there? You're just like, you know what? I don't care what's happening. I want to play video games. I don't care what's happening. I want to sit and watch 47 episodes of The Good Fight. Yeah, it's a good show, right? Yeah. Random thought. Learn ethical philosophy. Anywho, moral philosophy aside. No, yes, no. Anywho. All right. We get caught up in what we want, what we want to do, what we want to be, what we want to think about. When those times happen, at some point this week, I want you to stop, take a deep breath, and then pray. And ask God to show you where your allegiances are uncertain. Are you being faithful to him? Are you being faithful to what you wanted, you desired to be faithful in? Are you being faithful to him? Or are you being faithful to what the world says you should have? Are you being faithful to him? Or are you being faithful to what, uh, goodness, even a temper might be whispering into your ear? What is his? And if you can even see a little point where what you are doing or thinking or saying is being built upon not who Jesus is, but on who you are or any other foundation, repent of it. Apologize to him. Say, Lord, I'm sorry. In this area of my life, I have been focused on me instead of you. Help me overcome this and help me give my life to you more and more today. And then stand up and start walking towards him. faith will be much more. Let's take a minute and pray. I'll invite Zach up so we can move on. Lord Jesus, we thank you because we know that you are constantly calling out to us, constantly pulling us towards you, constantly enabling us to overcome ourselves more and more so that we can focus on who you are and what you think. Lord, I pray as we move forward this week, may we give our lives more and more wholly over to Lord, may the temptations of Satan, may the temptations of the world, may the temptations of our own flesh not overcome what you have called for us to do and be. And Lord God, may you reign in our lives. Jesus, we offer ourselves to you. We give our lives over to you because there's nothing more we can do to thank you for you giving your life for us. We thank you for offering yourself on the cross Thank you for shedding your own blood for us. Thank you for giving up your life for us. And thank you for raising again and defeating sin and death for us now. We can't wait until we don't have to fight these battles with ourselves anymore, with Satan anymore, with the world anymore. We can't wait until you wholly have taken over this world. So, Lord, come quickly. Am I doing communion or are you?
me? All right, I got this. As we step into a time of communion today, we're going to be spending a moment just in silence, considering the ways in which we have not been remembering Christ's lordship over us. This covenant symbol reminds us of the belief we have that Christ died for us, broke himself for us, took on death for us, took on the consequences of sin for us, so that we wouldn't have to deal with it anymore, so that he would overcome that for us. We remember the fact that he, in his death, defeated death, and he, in his resurrection, broke sin for all time. So as we're doing this, let's not allow this to be a time where we simply walk forward and eat some bread because we do it every Sunday. Take a moment and remember who Jesus is and what he's done. Remember who he is to you, your Lord. weighing heavily on your heart that you feel the need to repent of, take a moment to do so. If there's anyone that you have sinned or wronged, apologize to them and pray for them. But don't let this just be an act that you do in front of a tradition you partake in from your people. This will be a time for you to renew your commitment to your Lord. feel so free to come forward and partake of the elements. At City Church, we offer those pieces of open communion that means anyone who is a follower of Christ, regardless of food and conversion, is welcome to partake with us. So if you are ready to do so, if you are a follower of Christ, please feel free to move forward, partake of the bread, dip it into the cup. Have a great rest of your week.